right, well, good afternoon, everyone. You all know me. My name is Claire Ramsey, and yes, this is my first sermon to give. And yay! Um, I really am. I am excited, and honestly, I'm very honored to speak to you guys. This is family. You are my friends. I don't see myself as any better than you guys. You know, we're just here together learning about the Lord and walking together. Um, and so I've been a part of this community for almost four years now and currently serving on the local board. And like I said, I'm very excited to bring you the word of God today. Um, you know, we're coming up on a time of year where everyone is super inspired to try new things, set goals, like anyone, New Year's resolutions, people in the house. Woo! Yeah, I'm not one of them. So, but yay for you. I'm so happy for you. Uh, New Year's resolutions and like goal setting in general is not really my thing. Um, and it's not that I don't have goals or vision for my life. I'm just a bit more laid back. I'm like, let's go with the flow. I mean, that way, but I'm just going to go with the flow. Um, and that's not such a bad thing to be. There are pros and cons, but some of those cons for being a bit more laid back is like laziness. <laughs> or lack of preparation. Um, for example, there was a time in college where I was living in this little house with my friend and there was a small patch of dirt out in front. And just one day I was like, I will plant flowers. Never planted flowers before, but I was like, I'm gonna do it. So I watched a YouTube video, great preparation. I read slash skimmed articles about what to buy, what to do. And so I set out to do that. I went to the store, I bought all the right tools that looked good to me. Um, I went home, and I'm sure that the an actual gardener, if they had watched me, would have been horrified at my techniques. So as I began to plant the seeds, I got very bored quickly. <laughs> and so I probably didn't plant them deep enough or too far, and like I bought fresh soil because it was straight up dirt in front of my house. Yeah, that was some Texan coming out. Some dirt in front of my house, and so I probably didn't spread out the soil like it should been. Um, needless to say, beautiful flowers did not grow in front of my house, um, even though I had all or at least some of the right tools and the right elements and space to create beautiful flowers. The preparation was obviously lacking, and as well as the soil and root system. And so I did not really try to learn about what I was doing or tend to the flowers properly. Um, oh, and I think I tried to do this in the middle of summer, in Texas summer. Timing was obviously a tad off as well. So um, today I would like to talk to you about something else that if not properly understood um, or if we don't tend to it well in our hearts, it will cause us to become frustrated in the lack of growth or of flowers in your life. And so things will fl not flourish no matter how much work we put into it because the root system is not well taken care of. And so I would like to speak to you today about our identities in Christ. Your identity is a son and daughter of God. And this is something I'm very passionate about. It's a huge part of my testimony, which I'll share a little bit today. Um, but I believe it is a foundational aspect of our walk with God, one we must learn to cultivate every day and never leave behind as like a basic teaching for baby Christians. This isn't Christianity 101. You don't become a Christian, learn your daughter or son of God, and then move on to other things. Um, so turn with me to our passages today. Uh, we will begin by reading them and then praying together. So first, let's go to Genesis chapter 2. So Molly did read our other passage, but I want to 
start with Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. It says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living being. All right, so keep that bookmark. Shouldn't be too hard. It should be like the second page of your Bible. <laughs> and let's turn over to Luke 15. Luke 15, 11 to 32. And I know Molly just read it so beautifully, but I would like us to read it again together. So Luke 15, 11 to 32. It says, Jesus continued. So he's in the middle of telling this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant or far country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men, or how many of his servants, have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. For he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son, you know, it's really hard not to read in there, womp, 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 <laughs> when you see him enter, but we're not ragging on the older son today because we've all been there. So, meanwhile, the older son, yay, was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So, he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. It was fitting, it was right to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
Amen. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you are in this place even now and that it is your job to reveal yourself. It is not my job. I'm just here to tell about what you have done, to just talk about you with my family. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you would come do the work only you can do. Um, release your revelation, release your, release your wisdom, and reveal Jesus and our Lord and our Father God to us today. May our hearts be fertile to receive your word today, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I grew up going to church. I was that church kid. My grandfather was a Baptist preacher. Woo! <laughs> so I grew up going to church, and I love my home church. I still go when I go home, and I know they love the Lord. But some of the teachings there tended to lean towards very legalistic or the religious kind of things. Um, and so I grew up with an understanding that God was someone that was really far off. And so in order to come close to him or to draw him close to me, I needed to do good things. I needed to behave well. Um, and so I felt that my obedience would draw him closer to me. And whittling that down, there is some truth to that. Our obedience does please the Lord, but when it's done out, out of our expression of love to him. Um, but unknowingly to me, I began to equate God's love to my works. Meaning when I did good things, he loved me more, or he drew closer. But when I did bad things or sinful things, he loved me less and moved away from me. It was a very slave and servant kind of mindset. And so this resulted in a lot of things, one of them being that I was never actually sure of my salvation. I mean, when I was 10 or 11, I did get baptized. I confessed him as Lord and Savior. Um, I believed in God, but I was not sure I was going to heaven. <laughs> crazy. I remember at one like church event, our small group leader asked the group, raise your hand if you know you're going to heaven. And I did not raise my hand. At this point, I was probably in high school. Um, but I looked at those who were raising their hand. I was like, how can they possibly know they're going to heaven? Um, I thought, what if I died right now and I didn't ask for forgiveness for this sin and I go to God and there's still an unforgiven sin on my heart? I mean, is he going to let me in? And so one of the most common things I prayed growing up, I can remember praying it every night, was, Lord, forgive me of all my sins today, even the ones I do not realize I committed. I mean, I wanted my bases covered. I mean, not that I thought I was going to die in the middle of the night. <laughs> I mean, I did used to struggle with this whole, I was scared about Jesus coming back. I won't go all into that. So I was like, okay, if you come back tonight, I will be covered. So forgive me for everything. Okay, now I can go to sleep. <laughs> I know it's really so even more so, <laughs> it wasn't at the time, but it's awesome now. So even more so, I believe that guilt and shame were essential to transformation, namely transformation of my behavior. It was never about the heart for me. It was never about a relationship with God for me. I honestly thought God used guilt to change people. And so, I mean, I did love God, and I still do, but it was always about what I could do for him. And so when I did things that were wrong or sinful, I would ask for forgiveness. I believed I was forgiven, but I would still feel guilty. Um, I mean, sometimes your emotions do linger, but if I would start to feel better too soon, I would make myself feel guilty. And I usually would make myself feel guilty for like three days. Again, I don't know why. <laughs> like all these parameters I set up for myself, I don't know why three days was the minimum amount of penance I was supposed to pay for my sin. 
that was the punishment I still needed to feel, the guilt I still needed to feel in order to change and be right with God. Um, but despite even knowing that he forgave me, I still felt all this guilt. So not surprisingly, I did not stay in church once I went to college. I was out of the house. And it wasn't so much that I stopped believing in God. Like, I never have. It was just at that point I was like, I am so tired of trying to please you this way, Lord. Maybe there's another way, but I don't know it. And all I'm doing is seeking your approval and man's approval, for that matter, trying to look good and do the right things. Um, And that's all that I saw church as. It was a place to learn to do the good things right and to please the Lord with my obedience. Um, But man, the Lord is so good. Obviously, I'm in a very different place now, and I can't go into all of that part of my story that brought me here. But I can say that in my absolutely wildest days, when I was farthest from God, when I was not interested in coming back to church at all, um, God found me. I mean, not that he lost me, but he found me. And he brought me back home. And he brought me to a place I realized I never truly understood. And that place being the Father's heart. And so there's so much to say about God's heart. There's literally an eternal amount of things to know and discover about God. In John 17:3, the Apostle John defines eternity as to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And so today I want to hone in on this one aspect of God's heart that I believe is very vital to understanding our identities as sons and daughters of God. So let's hop back over to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And in this one verse, I believe we can see something about God's heart that is incredibly profound and amazing. And so it says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. All right, so we're going to have some fun. We're going to play this out in our imaginations, okay? You all have imaginations? Uh, so I would like us to imagine. Yes, okay. <laughs> you don't ask Jesus. He'll heal you. You haven't. All right, so we're going to just imagine what this moment is like. And so please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying we add to the Bible. Um, I'm just saying we can imagine what this must have been, been like. Let's picture it. Because we tend to read story, read the Bible, and especially like the creation story and the story of the lost son, we tend to read it very two-dimensionally. Like, yep, he created the son of this and this and this, my man, awesome. But we miss so many layers and textures to the word. So let's say you are one of the angels. Now, to put your minds at ease if you're very theologically based, angels were around at this time. <laughs> I mean, everyone pretty much believes they were created by the sixth day uh, when everything was completed. Um, but there's any, or there's many people who even think they were probably created the first day with the heavens. And there's a lot of evidence to support this, including Job 38, 4-7. Um, God is speaking to Job and mentions the morning stars and the sons of God, which is another term for angels sometimes, um, shouting for joy at the creation of the earth. So, you're an angel. Is that cool? Okay, cool. If you don't want to be an angel, you can be a star. That is what you are. Coming from... Okay, yep. Anyways. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Maya, right? Okay. All right. Yes, Maya. Holy Spirit. Spirit of Maya. All right, so here we go. You are an angel of God, just created by him. And you have just witnessed the formless, empty, and chaotic darkness be transformed into a beautiful world of perfect order. 
Okay, so you've been chilling with your angel best friend. You've known each other your whole lives, okay, which could have been a really long time. Time wasn't around at that point. So you've been best friends, and you hear God say all of these things, and then all these things are coming to be. So, for example, you hear God say, let there be lights to govern the sky, the sun, moon, and stars, and bam, the best fireworks show is on display. Your jaw hits the floor, and you're like, that's lit. Yeah, yes. Sorry, but not sorry. I got dad jokes for days. Yes, for days. And so God speaks again, and he says, let there be beasts in the field. So up from the ground come all kinds of creatures. Maybe you see a beautiful and majestic sloth. You don't know why it moves so slowly, but it's like poetry. And then maybe you see a spider, and you're like, why? And so you move over to the sloth section of the garden. Okay, so God continues to speak, and things continue to appear and be. God has spoken everything into existence up to this point. And you are just floored at the power of God's word. God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. Then God does something that you, an angel, have never seen him do before. And this is kind of my first main point. I'm going to give you like two umbrellas. They're connected at the handle, so it's a two-umbrella system we got going on. This is the first one, big umbrella. He bends down low. He bends down low, and he scoops up some dirt with his very hands, and he breathes his life into man's nostrils. This is scandalous. We read this as pretty and beautiful, and it really is, but this is scandalous. It is the Lord Almighty, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the holy and glorious one is getting dirt under his fingernails so that he could give us his very life and be right there the moment man was created. I think the first thing that Adam saw when he opened his eyes was God's face. And I think God, in my own silly mind, was just about this close to Adam. I think he was just so excited. He was like, hey, hey, you're awake. Hi, I'm God. You're Adam, father, son. Woo! I'm excited. Okay? I just think God was just so excited that he could not keep himself from being close to us. It was a delicate and intimate process woven into the very creation of man. God of the newly created universe revealed his Emmanuel nature to the world when he bent down and made us with his very hands. And scripture talks about being made with God's hands many, many times. Job 10, verses 8 says, Your hands shaped me and made me. Isaiah 64, 8 says, Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hands. And Psalm 139, 13, For you created my inmost being, and you knit me together in my mother's womb. It's a very intricate and delicate and just this motion kind of thing. <laughs> you knit me together in my mother's womb. And this is why we need scripture to interpret scripture. Because all over the Bible it says God made us with his hands. And this is why I believe that he bent down low to scoop up the dirt. That he wasn't off in the sky pulling some magic trick and like raising the dirt up and then like shooting off some air to land in the nostril going, nailed it, Kobe. You know, just like, it wasn't like a perfect shot from far off. He was close. 
From the beginning, God distinguished himself from any other quote-unquote God or belief system to come. He was not a God that would stay in the heavens or up in the stars or high up on a mountain with humanity having to find and forge their way to him. No, the sovereign almighty one is also the lowly one, the humble one. So Jesus, the son of God, when he came to earth as fully man and fully God, even describes himself as such in Matthew 11:29, when he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Even other translations say, For I am gentle and lowly in heart. He bends down low. This is not just a physical posture that I believe he took in the beginning. This is the posture of God's heart even now. The lowly heart of God, which is my sermon title, by the way. If you want to throw that out there. The lowly heart of God. And so I believe it is safe to say that God is not only willing, but desires to bend low to reach us and our hearts. God's relentless pursuit for our heart is all over the Bible. It is the essence of the gospel. Jesus bent low in a sense and came down to earth. And he came down to earth not as a mighty warrior but as a baby. And he lived a life serving others even though he, was, he is king of kings. And then he died the lowest of deaths and rose again all to make a way for us to him. And it all began in the garden. The cross was not a backup plan. This was God's intention from the beginning, to bend low to be with us, and so we could be with him. And so this brings me to my second point, my second umbrella, so to speak. And it's a very deep question. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? For us who say and we know that we are sons and daughters of God, for those of us who have given our lives to Christ and by faith and grace entered into his family, so what does it mean to be a son or daughter to a father with a lowly heart or to a God with a lowly heart? So let's go over back to Luke 15, 11 to 32. So we've read it twice now. We won't read it again. All right, so I, but I want to take you to just a few key verses. So I'm going to be doing some setting up and some summarizing, and then we're going to zoom in on a few places together. Um, because context is incredibly important in Scripture. Um, and it can add so many layers to what we as a 21st century Christian can see in reading a story like this. You know, we often read these stories, especially ones so famous, and think how beautiful and poetic and just, oh, God's so nice, he hugged him, yay! And it is awesome and it is beautiful, um, but we're going to see that this story is actually quite gritty. There's a lot of things that Jesus put in this story that made his audience straight up uncomfortable. Like Jesus, he is gentle, he is humble, but he is not afraid to come into your house and make you uncomfortable. <laughs> like he's going to move things around so you can see him as he really is. And so we can't go into all the grit because of the time. Um, but we will look at some cultural things that add tension and texture to the story. Um, and most of what I present to you in regards to ancient Jewish culture, um, I learned from many sermons by Judah Smith, 
maybe you've heard me heard me mention him a time or two. I mean, I, he's smart. But I did do my own research, okay? But just Googling ancient Jewish culture is not easy. Okay. But we're all in a process, amen? <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so here we go. So this is a story, this whole thing, the parable, all three of them. But I do like how Judas Smith puts it, that it's just one parable with three parts. Um, all of this is a story that Jesus is telling. He is the author of this fictional but true story. It's fictional in the sense that these are characters, like this father and these sons did not really exist. Um, but it is true what Jesus is trying to teach about the father's heart. And he is speaking to a largely Jewish audience that is made up of two groups of people. We have the sinners. We have the undesirable, marginalized, um, people of doubtful reputation, as the Message Bible puts it. Um, and then we also have the church people, the Pharisees and scribes. I mean, not only are they church people, they're church leaders. So we have these two groups of people. And Jesus tells this parable or this story in response to this observation made by the Pharisees that sinners seem to be attracted to him. They like Jesus. All these people they think don't belong in church are attracted to this, like, holy man. Um, and then Jesus responds by welcoming them and eating with them which in that culture conveyed value and respect and honor for the person you were dining with. Like eating with someone wasn't just grabbing a meal together. It was a custom that carries significance in that culture. So basically the Pharisees are like, well, this holy man, again, I don't I just go country, sorry guys. So this holy man, he eats with these people. Mm, bless his heart. You know, just, it's probably how we would say it, but they're basically saying like, he eats and welcomes these people? Like, I, this is, no. And so Jesus, in response to this observation of who he hangs out with and who he gives value to, um, he tells the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And to quickly summarize, I mean, we know these, but it's good to just remind ourselves where we're coming in on the story. There's the lost sheep. You know, a shepherd loses one out of the 99. He leaves them to find the one, and when he does, he brings it back, and he invites everyone over for a huge party. And then a woman loses one out of ten coins, and she, like, overturns her house. Like, in the original language, there's really, like, a lot of, like, moving furniture, looking in the cracks, taking the lamp. It's not just moving a few things around, um, but she overturns her house, and she finds her coin, invites everyone over for a party, that costs more than that one coin is even worth. Then we come to the lost son. And I actually think um, that this parable should be called the lost sons. Because to me, they are both lost and have no idea what it means to be a son in this father's house. And so let's look at the more famous son first, the younger one. Okay, so I'm going to kind of summarize where we are and then we're going to zoom in. So he's asked for his inheritance. He took it all, like the father gave it to him. And he goes to another country far away, and he finds himself so desperate when the famine hits and in need that he hires himself out to a person of that country. That means not a Jewish man. He hires himself out to a Gentile or foreigner. And not only does he hire himself to him, but the job he ends up with is to feed pigs. And these are both unthinkable acts in this culture. A Jewish man would never willingly work for a Gentile, and he would most certainly have nothing to do with pigs. 
which is one of the foods that was unlawful and avoided by the Jews. Like Even in my research, I was trying to find about like that time, um, I found some article on a Jewish website, just kind of like our own Christian websites where we have blogs and stuff to help us today. On this one for Jews, there was an article titled something like, Why Pigs Are the Most Despised Foods in the Law. So it's not just they were unlawful to Jews. Jews are like, yeah, like, don't eat that. Don't eat pigs. Like, pigs are at the very bottom and the most detested animal in their culture. And so, at this point, we do see that this is his lowest point. But one scholar writes that it is his lowest because he has all but given up on his identity as a Jewish man. He's gone too low to deserve that identity. He's working for a Gentile. He's feeding the pigs. He's like, I, I'm not worthy of that identity anymore. But at this point, Jesus says he comes to himself or he repents and sets his mind to go home where he will ask his father for forgiveness and for a place in his house, but as a servant. And so let's zoom in on verse 19. Verse 19, he prepares a speech for his father to hopefully win or earn a place in the Father's house again. So look with me there and take note of it, underline it, remember it, where it says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. I am no longer worthy. Implicit in this language is the belief that his identity as his father's son is something to be worthy of, something that he must be deserving of and earn through his actions or performance as a son. And at this point, he feels he barely deserves to even be a servant in his father's house. And the older son is really no different. And so jump ahead with me to verse 29. So at this point in the story, the younger son is home. The father has lavished robe, jewelry, all the fun stuff in a party. I mean, while he's still dirty, by the way. I mean, there's no mention of a quick rub-a-dub-dub time. And Jesus could have easily added that in there. But there's no mention of him cleaning himself up before they party. Um, so here we are. Party is raging, and the father and the son are celebrating the restoration of their relationship. And here comes the older son in from the field. And he comes in from a place he likely is every day, working diligently, working hard, doing the good work in the Father's house. Now, working hard and doing the good works in the Father's house isn't a bad thing, but you will soon see why in this instance it isn't good, or rather this is why a lot of his emotional turmoil comes out in this way. So he comes in and hears the party. He asks a servant what's going on. And so when he hears it is for his younger brother who has come home, he becomes angry and refuses to join the party. So the father comes out, and in verse 29, the older son tells his father, look. I mean, can you imagine telling your father, look? Probably not. <laughs> My dad would be like, okay. Like, then gave it to me later. But like, <laughs> all these years, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. So while the younger son felt he had done so many horrible things as to not deserve his place as a son, the older son 
felt he had done so much right that he absolutely earned and deserved his identity as a son. His performance was so perfect, in fact, he felt he even deserved a party of his own or greater favor than his no-good deadbeat brother. You know, it's kind of funny at both points, or both sons, at some point in the story, feel that the only way to be with the father right is through servanthood. They think their relationship with their father, the success of it is dependent on how well they serve or don't serve. And so now here's where we can see what we talked about in the creation of man, about God's lowly heart. I want to look at the father's response to each of his sons. And it might not seem obvious now, but we are going to see the low and humble heart of our father. And remember, this isn't just a story. This is Jesus telling us what his, his father's heart is like. And so to his younger son, in verse 20, the father responds to his return by running after him. Verse 20 says, But while he, the younger son, was still a long way off, his father saw him, just the outline, just the silhouette of him, and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Man, I love the activeness of God's love. So the father, this Jewish man, ran to his son. Again, this was a scandalous, unthinkable thing for a Jewish man to do. This Jewish audience, the sinners and the church leaders alike, were probably not fans of this father. From the beginning, he's done something that a good father shouldn't do. He gave his inheritance while he was still alive. And now he's running to his son and embracing him. I think they probably thought, oh, he's running to him. He's going to drop kick him. No. No, he's, hu- he's hugging him. He's, ooh, he's still covered in pig stuff. <laughs> and he's hugging him. No way. And so you know the movie, um, old movie, White Man Can't Jump? You know? Shout out early 90s, Wesley Snipes. Woody Harrell is about basketball. Okay? So I actually haven't watched the movie. I just know it's out there. Okay? But if there was a movie about this moment, I think it would be called Jewish Men Don't Run. <laughs> it was just, this just didn't happen. Running was an undignified thing for a Jewish man to do. It was below his stature as a Jewish father, the head of the household. It was below him to run. And yet Jesus says his father, or this father, runs to his son. He runs because his heart is so full of compassion at just the sight of him. The father has no care for the filth he is covered in, or even the son's speech. I mean, you notice the son doesn't finish his speech. He starts to get it out, and the father just interrupts him and ignores it and starts ordering the robe and the jewelry, all these things of honor and favor, and he orders a celebration for his son. I mean, not to say that forgiveness isn't important, but I don't know, Jesus didn't write it in there at this moment. At this moment that he saw that the father, that all he cared about was his son was home and that he embraced him. And so the father, I think, has the same response in his heart to his older son. So when the older son refuses to come inside to the party, the father comes out. He runs out to his younger son, and he leaves a party celebrating his dead son being alive again, and he comes out to his older son. He runs out, and he comes out. And he leaves the party when he absolutely does not have to. 
He could have easily sent a message back with a servant, you know, telling his son, uh, who do you think you are? Like, get your butt inside. Remember that butt I made? Slap a smile on your face, hug your brother, and eat some calf, okay? Or maybe you have a grape. You're not a very good attitude right now. Get an attitude and you can get a steak, all right? So instead, this father in verse 28, he went out and he pleaded with him. He went out and he pleaded with his older son. This word pleaded in the Greek means to strive to appease by entreaty. In other parts of the Bible, this word is translated as begging. I mean, can you imagine a father, especially one in this heavily patriarchal society, lowering himself to a position to beg his son to come inside? And in response to his older son's declaration that he has surely earned his own party. I've been super good, man. Don't I get my own, at least a goat? The father says in verse 31, My son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. Always and everything. From his birth until this point in time, the father is saying, Look, I've always been with you. Everything I have belongs to you. Before this son could even plow a single field or do one good work in his house, the father had given him everything. I mean, doesn't that remind you of another father and another son in a garden? When Adam was nothing but dust and could do nothing for God, God bent down and breathed his very life into him, giving him everything the moment he he was created. Like if you read on, God doesn't just create him. He gives him dominion over everything. He gives him blessings. He's like, all these trees, not those two, but all these trees you can eat from, all these animals, all these things you have dominion over. And this was from the moment he was created. That is the heart of the Father. And so again, oopsie, where am I? It's it. Here I am. Okay. So in both responses, the father acts below his stature and position as a Jewish father, the head of the household. He runs to the younger son and embraces him in his mess. He leaves the party in order to plead with his older, self-righteous son. And both times, the father calls him son. He's like, my son has come home, or my son, everything I have belongs to you. Their identities did not change in the father's eyes. Both times he shows them that everything in his house and his heart belongs to them and that he is willing to go out to them to show them this. Not because they earned it, but simply because the father loves them. So again, let's ask ourselves, what does this mean for us? The lowly heart of God, the way the father responds to his two sons in this story, what does this mean for us? This obliterates any pretense or lie that we have believed or may even believe now that our sin and shame separate us or disqualify us as sons and daughters or that our self-righteous acts performed with a slave and servant mindset earn us our identity or even impress God so much that we earn greater standing and blessing and favor. You don't earn your identity as a child of God. You are birthed into it. By faith and grace alone. 
And it's not a bait and switch. God doesn't say, well, you can enter by faith, but you've got work to work for your keep. That is not the heart of the Father, and that is not how your identity as a son and daughter works. He has always been with you. Everything he has belongs to you. God is speaking that to you today. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The lowly heart of God sets us free from a performance-based identity and performance-based relationship with him. I'm going to say that again. The lowly heart of God sets us free from a performance-based identity and performance-based life and relationship with him. And so I want to end with one more question. Why is this so important? Like we all know this. We're a son. We're a daughter. But why is this so important we don't leave it behind as a basic truth and now I need to move on to something else? Why do I say that I believe it is a foundational aspect to your walk with God? Because knowing you are fully accepted, fully known, and fully loved by God sets you up to live in everlasting and steadfast peace. Because the war for your identity is over. There is no more fighting for victory in your identity. There is no more fighting in your own strength to be the good child of God. The abundant life promised to us by Jesus will flourish and manifest as we rest from fighting the wrong kind of fights. As you rest from fighting the fights that you were never meant to fight. We're not meant to fight for a place in our Father's house. Your name is at the table and it cannot be moved. Like if you do something wrong, he's not going to move you to the kiddie table and be like, all right, when you've earned your way back to the adult section, when you've matured, you can come close to me again. No, your place is permanent and has been sealed by the blood of Jesus. That fight was already won for and done on the cross. Now, I'm not saying battles won't come. The insecurity, fear, and pride, and shame, those are real things. But son and daughter, your father has already won this victory. This message today is just this one thing that I hope you can cling to in every moment to know that Yes, I still want to do good works, and I do need to repent. There's battles to fight, but this is not a battle you need to fight. It's been won. His lowly heart has set you free forevermore. Okay, so I would like us to end this time. Like I like giving a chance to respond. Um, so if Elizabeth could come up and play. That's my super secret signal that I told you I was going to give you. All right, we're going to sing. I want her to... Let's just play a little bit first. And I just want to pray for you guys, if you would stand up with me. I'm going to pray for you. And then we're just going to sing in response to the lowly heart of God. Whoopsie. I believe out of this verse, out of this passage, a word for us today that God was just really like sitting on is his response to the older son. He says, my son... You are always with me. Everything I have is yours. God is saying today, it's time to stop fighting the battles that were never meant for you. It is a weary fight. It's a weary, weary, tiring fight. Fighting for what God has already won for you. Trying to fight in your own strength. 
And so I kind of want to pray for two groups of people today. Um, if you feel comfortable, you can raise your hand and we'll pray for you. If not, that's totally fine. Um, let me just say who I would like to pray for. So first, if you feel like you've lost your identity as a child of God, in any area of your life, it doesn't have to be a full-on gone kind of thing. If you feel like you've gone too far away in an area of your life to be deserving of God's forgiveness and blessings, I would like to pray for you. Or second, if you feel like God owes you something, that you see others getting blessed and you ask yourself, haven't I been a good son? Haven't I been a good daughter? Yes, you have. I'm going to tell you right now, yes, you have. Okay, maybe you're asking, where's my party? Where's my promise? Where's my dream that I've been cultivating in my heart? Didn't I give it to you, Lord? Haven't I been good enough to deserve it and earn it? Maybe you start to see that in your heart. Maybe you see some pride and entitlement too. Like there's no shame. If Holy Spirit is highlighting something to you now, it's because God intends to invade it now and heal it. And so if either one of those, with our eyes closed at least at first, uh, I'm going to probably ask you to open your eyes again, but with your eyes closed, if your heart responded to either one of those, I would invite you to raise your hand. And if you feel comfortable, I'm going to ask everyone to open their eyes again. And if you see someone with their raised hand, you're close by to lay your hands on them. So if I say open your eyes and your hand's still up, that means you want people to pray for you. So you can open your eyes. If you see someone with their hand up, please surround them. Not everyone. So let me just, like, yeah, just pray for her now. <laughs> and just pray, and I'm going to pray for you. So I'll give you a moment to pray. Yeah, and just pray for yourselves or pray for someone else you know, okay? Okay. 